You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Wednesday, January 23rd, Washington Post reporter Jason Rezaian discussed his new book, Prisoner, My 544 Days in an Iranian Prison, in a Post Live interview with Washington Post columnist David Ignatius. Rezaian, who served as Tehran bureau chief for the Washington Post when he was in prison, talked about the circumstances of his capture and confinement, as well as the heroic efforts to get him back home. Let's listen. I can't believe it's been three years since, uh, since I was in this room um, in that clip. Thanks, everybody, for coming. I appreciate it. So I, I, before we start, I just want to say a word about some of the people you saw in this film. First, our publisher, Fred Ryan, who led the effort to keep uh, faith with um, Jason. Uh, all of the journalists who, who covered this story, um, some people you didn't see so much but who were instrumental behind the scenes who are here today, Bob Kimmett from our law firm, uh, Wilmer Hale, who just was outstanding. Uh, and uh, here today is a government uh, servant who just left uh, the State Department, Brett McGurk, one of the, the wisest... Uh, So we just we want to recognize them. Um, I am so happy to say that the hashtag today, if you want to ask questions, is hashtag post live, not hashtag free Jason. Uh, it's good Makes to have two of us. That uh, I was very happy about. That. So, um, Jason, it is emotional for all of us uh, at the at the paper, and I, I think in this audience. Uh, to have you um, with us. And I want to just kind of start at the beginning. Uh, I'll bet many people in the audience wonder, why do these journalists go to places like Iran? What do they do? I mean, this isn't so easy. What's, what's your answer? Explain how you got there in the first people place. People do ask that question. Newspaper readers ask that question. And I, I say to them, uh, well, don't you want to read the, re the newspaper every day? Don't you want to stay interested? Don't you want to know what's going on? Uh, in the world, if we don't put ourselves in those situations, in those places, uh, we're not going to have any coverage of the rest of the world. And, and in a lot of ways, um, governments like the one in Iran would love nothing more than for us to have an a intimate portrait of what life is like uh, inside their borders. Uh, but I didn't feel good about that. I wanted to go there and, and write about a place that uh, that I thought I could make more accessible to the readers of the Washington Post. Jason, when you read your book, uh, you'll see this was really a, a choice. Jason had grown up uh, as an Iranian-American in the United States. Uh, his, his mother, Mary, who's here, uh, grew up in the, in the middle of America. Um, and Jason made a decision to jump into the lion's den in 2008, 2009. 2009, yeah. Uh, and to begin this work, uh, came to work for the Washington Post in 2000, 2012. Um, again, I bet this audience has no good idea of what Iran looks like. Yeah. When you g get up in the morning, what you see out your, out your window. I once, uh, during a visit there, described it as being halfway between Los Angeles and Pyongyang. 
um, which captured a little bit of what I felt. But to just give us a verbal picture of, sure. of what Tehran is like. Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, it's an incredibly vibrant city. It's vast. It's about 14 million people uh, living there and about 20 million people working there. So a lot of people, you know, commute to the city every day. And there's a pulse of life, the likes of which I've never experienced anywhere else. Um, it's a it's a city that uh, wakes up early and goes to sleep late. And you wouldn't think that uh, about an Islamic uh, capital where uh, there's no bars or nightclubs, but there's a lot of street life. Uh, people are out and about. There's a, a connectivity and a, um, a sort of willingness to communicate with people on the street. And you know, you get in these taxis, you know, I know that we have, uh, when you get a Lyft or an Uber, you can take the carpool option and get in the car with a bunch of people you don't know. They've been doing that in Iran for, for decades, right? Uh, so you talk to your neighbors and you talk to people that you don't know. Um, and so it, it's, a, it's a very much an, an alive place. And also, I think, um, you know, the, the political trends, um, although there's, uh, as we saw in the video, there's, there's one man on top of the pyramid uh, kind of calling a lot of the shots, there's a lot of jockeying uh, that goes on down below for power. So it's an incredible story to cover. Um, and then, you know, factor in that there's only a handful of us uh, foreign journalists working there at any given time. Uh, there's a great culinary scene, and I like to enjoy a meal from time to time. Uh, I met my wife there, and, and you know, she's... Um, um, one of many millions of young, educated Iranians that um, that are quite different than the perception that, that we have about that place as a closed-off society. So, for me, it was just a fascinating place and one that was um, was incredibly misunderstood here in America. And I thought that I could go and talk about that. One of the bizarre things about uh, Jason's arrest was that in your coverage, you really tried to make. Iran a real place where, you know, you had this kind of really interesting foodie scene. You right. had a cultural life. It was dynamic. It was, a, you know, you were in a sense encouraging people to think about being t tourists uh, going to I Iran. Um, first, talk a little bit about that, about that journalism, what you wanted to do. And, and second, isn't it odd, as you think about it, that you were a target of, a, of, a, of a, the regime governing a country that you were trying to, in a sense, um, celebrate its culture, yeah. not tear it down? So I think, you know, my intention initially was, here we are, uh, 35 years past that revolutionary moment in Iran. Um, our opinions and our views of, of that country are pretty ossified, uh, fossilized uh, in, in 1979. And, and time has moved on, and, and that country has moved forward and its people have moved forward. Um, I wanted to, to give a, a voice to what was happening there uh, rather than just the pronouncements that were coming out of the Friday prayers or the Supreme Leader's office. Um, and so, you know, my, my goal was to really get you to imagine a world beyond uh, one that you could maybe imagine based on what you thought you knew about Iran. Uh, and I think I did that pretty successfully for a, a pretty long time. Um, and so you're right. I, it was ir ironic, maybe isn't the right word. Maybe it's tragic that they decided to put the, the kibosh on my ability to, to operate in that country. 
So tell this audience uh, the chilling scene that opens your book, where there's a knock on your door at a man with a gun. Just, just walk us through that. So it's July 22nd, 2014. Yegi and I were preparing to, uh, to come to the United States for an extended visit. Uh, we'd been married for 15 months. Her green card papers were uh, ready, and we were about to embark on what we uh, envisioned as that uh, kind of bicontinental life that a lot of people uh, that are foreign correspondents aspire to, and we, we came really close. Uh, it was Tuesday. We were to fly out on Friday. Um, we had a couple of things we wanted to do before we left, and one of them was to go to a surprise birthday party for my mother-in-law. So we were dressed up nicely. Um, we had ordered a, a taxi cab to come to our building and, and, and pick us up. Uh, we lived in a big high-rise in, in a nice part of Tehran. Um, took the elevator down to the, to, the, to the garage in the basement where cars would pick you up, and, and the elevator door opened, and there was this man with a gun and three other plain-closed agents behind him. Pointed right at my face, and he said, Rezaian? to myself, yeah, that's me. Uh, and they, they propped the elevator door open, you know, kind of made their way in, uh, took our cell phones from us, and took us back up to our, our apartment. Uh, and the scene that ensued is one that'll uh, they'll never leave my mind because uh, it was the beginning of this nightmare. Uh, they came into our house, separated us, began ransacking uh, our our all of our possessions. I mean, they went through everything. Uh, we had a safe where we kept our, our you know, passports and identity documents, all of that. They forced us to open it. They confiscated that, all those documents. They confiscated our, our cell phones, our computers, demanded our passwords. As this is going on, a dozen or more agents show up, all of them in surgical masks, all of them either with a gun uh, or a video camera. You know, they're taping this, this scene of really destruction in our house. Um, and then they, they said, okay, it's time to go. And they led us down into, uh, into the garage and past many of our neighbors where there was a white van uh, with tinted windows waiting. They put us in the back of that van, um, blindfolded us, handcuffed me, uh, and took us to Evin prison. And that was the last time I saw my home in Tehran. That, that was the moment that my life in Iran um, that I had been cultivating for you know, over five years uh, ended. So we saw in that, in that video the exterior of the famous Evin prison. Mm. But you have, were inside it for 544 days. Your book gives a kind of macabre, but also sometimes comedic account of these screwball guards who were, who were interrogating you. I say that because of some of the just really strange things that they said. Yeah. But just give us a portrait of, of a day in the life of Jason as he deals with Kazim and Borzu, his forced friends in, in that dreadful prison. As they referred to them uh, uh, themselves to my mother, they called themselves my imposed brothers. Um, and she repeated that several times. And I said, Mom, you stop calling these guys. I got a brother. He's here today. And as we all know now, he was doing incredible things on my behalf. 
Uh, but it was, it was like something out of a, a bad dream, uh, a very confusing dream, especially during those initial seven weeks that I was in solitary confinement. You know, the routine was you're in solitary confinement, the door opens, put the blindfold on, you're led to an interrogation room. Come back, do it again. This went on daily for seven weeks, sometimes multiple times a day. And you know, the, the sorts of things that they were, were accusing me of weren't crimes. You know, they were uh, you know, the banalities of, uh, of normal life, but you know, pulled out of my emails. So you know, for instance, at one point they came with a printout of, my, of an email to a friend uh, who I apologized uh, to for going radio silent for a couple of days. And they, they had this highlighted, radio silent. <laughs> Only spies go radio silent, right? I mean, that's the sort of thing that I was dealing with for this entire time, but it got more and more absurd. I was the cause of every single, um, you know, problem that the Islamic Republic had. Every, every enemy of the, of the system, even if they were at odds with one another, uh, was somebody that was paying me to do this job. It was the Mossad, it was the CIA, it was the MI6. It was the Baha'i community, the royalists, the MEK, uh, the international feminist movement. Uh, I mean, seriously, uh, it, it, was, it was all of those things and more. So, you know, I began to, um, over time, really fear this process, but at the same time, think to myself, okay, what are they going to, what are they coming with, with, with today? What's the, the new charge? And more often than not, my eyes would do a big eye roll. You know, and, uh, it's okay to laugh because um, as, as serious as the circumstances of my imprisonment were, uh, these people are ridiculous and we need to treat them as such. Reading your account, it doesn't seem like they ever had any real case. And, and the, the, they were sort of stumbling, as you say, from uh, explanation to explanation. Um, maybe I, I could ask you to, to cut to the chase, as it were, and what you were told at the very end about what lay behind this bizarre arrest and the IRGC's decision to hold you, because these were IRGC operatives, not other parts of the government. What did you, in the end, conclude about what had motivated this? I think, and, and this is kind of borne out through all my conversations with people here in the U.S. and also other people that, that work on Iran and have communication with uh, government officials and, and diplomats there. Um, you know, the, the moment of my arrest was right as the, uh, the nuclear negotiations between Iran and, and the world powers, including America, were, were starting to pick up real momentum. And the Revolutionary Guard Corps um, and factions within the Revolutionary, Revolutionary Guard Corps, specifically their intelligence agency, uh, which is at great odds with the actual Ministry of Intelligence. These are two internal rivals within uh, the power system in Iran. The IRGC didn't want to see these negotiations pan out. They wanted to do whatever they could to throw rocks at this process that the Rouhani government uh, had started with with world powers and, and looked close to uh, succeeding in, in, in completing. Um, so I think my arrest was one of many 
attempts by the IRGC to, to do things to scuttle that deal, to complicate the negotiations. And as you know, through your conversations with uh, people in both governments, it complicated things, you know? I mean, it became a, a, a topic of discussion every time these guys met. And these guys met very often. I mean, you know, Secretary Kerry spent more time with, with uh, Foreign Minister Zarif than he did with, I think, any other foreign leader during, uh, during uh, his time as Secretary of State. There's a moment in the in the book where uh, the Jason quotes where I'm at a public uh, meeting in New York with Foreign Minister Zarif, who, um, you know, is in in many ways the smoothest diplomat I ever encountered. I mean, uh, just uh, has an answer for everything, and he gives a very slick response to my demand about my colleague Jason Rezaian. <laughs> and Jason, here's Jason, the next paragraph, Jason says, and then Zarif, this green card holding, U.S. law degree wielding son of a bitch of a foreign minister of a sovereign state, and goes on. <laughs> and I thought uh, you were expressing their frustration with all of the stroking that was done by Zarif. Um, which leads me to, to, to ask this question. For many years, we've been writing about Iranian moderates. Oh, there are these moderates. There's Zarif and President Rouhani, and then there's these, these hardliners yeah. like Ali Khamenei. Um, and we've suggested that there's a meaningful distinction between the two. Um, help us think about that. Uh, is, are there moderates in the leadership? Um, if so, uh, what works and what doesn't in trying to empower them? So I think what we, what we should probably start doing sooner rather than later is kind of tossing aside these notions of hardline and moderate because they're so charged um, and uh, we're never going to come to any real agreement about it. I think what's clear is that there, there are really two types of leaders uh, or officials in Iran. They're the ones that want to see Iran remain a completely closed society, a completely closed economy that's, you know, controlled with, from within. And there are those that realize that that's not going to work long term and that they need to open up relationships um, with the rest of the world, especially on the economic front. They need foreign investment. Um, and they also uh, realize that they need to have some measure of popular support because we live in a moment where, um, you know, in Iran, even in a country like North Korea, uh, people have more and more access to information. You can't be a completely shut off, um, you know, dystopian Orwellian 1984 state in 2019. It's not possible. So, you know, I think that's the juxtaposition. People that want to keep it completely closed and people that realize that they need to open up to some degree. Uh, but there are no Jeffersonian Democrats in the Iranian power system. You know. So uh, we'll come back to Iran in a minute. I just want to turn to a question from uh, one of the people watching uh, uh, the live stream. Um, and it's in the context of Jason's work from this difficult place trying to keep open journalism going from the work that our colleague Jamal Khashoggi uh, tried to do um, in 
writing honest commentary for Saudi Arabia and the Arab world, um, and ended up giving his life for. And this questioner asks, with press freedoms under siege around the world, what can regular citizens like me, this is Martha on Facebook, what can regular citizens like me to do to defend the First Amendment? What should and can we do? And how would you answer, Martha? That's a really great question. I'm asked that from time to time. Um, I think, first and foremost, we have to decide as a country that the First Amendment really matters. Uh, and this notion that, um, that you know, we or any news organization is, is uh, kind of cultivating and spreading fake news, we need to diffuse this as much as we can. And the best way to do that, uh, I think, uh, is for, for all of us to do a better job of presenting all sides, right? I mean, I turn on one um, cable news network and switch to the other one, and it's night and day, right? You know, one side is on, it, one channel is talking about uh, an issue from one point of view, and the other is talking about from a completely opposite one. I think there needs to be more of a balance uh, across channels and across uh, medium. I mean, you remember a time better than I do, probably, uh, where you know, you'd read two or three newspapers in a day to hear what the other side thought. And we don't do that anymore. We just hear what we want to hear. Um, so that's a great question. Unfortunately, Martha, there's a lot of people out there that, that think that what I do isn't real because uh, they don't agree with what I have to say, and that's um, not an American value as far as I'm concerned. Also, more importantly, uh, subscribe to your local paper and subscribe to a national one. That's what I think. Good. Yeah. But definitely uh, subscribe to a local one, because they need it a lot, too. Fred Ryan, we, don't, we, we think that that's a good idea, don't we? <laughs> um, so uh, I want to... Uh, Turn to another p part of this book that I really uh, loved. Uh, this is in part a love story. This is about how you and Yegi, your bride, you'd been married less than two years when these terrible events happened, um, you know, struggled through a nightmare together and became a, a couple in a different way. But just tell us a little bit about that. Yegi had grown up in Iran, as you had not. Yep. And uh, just, uh, she's sitting in the, in the front row. I, I'm not going to embarrass her to, by making her stand up. Just tell us a little bit about that part of the book. Because every few chapters, when you read this, you'll find that Jason turns to uh, his wife and her family and her struggle and what was going on. So share that. So, you know, I, I had, when I moved to Iran in 2009, uh, it was a tumultuous time in that country. There was a lot going on um, with the contested re-election of uh, Ahmadinejad. And um, in the wake of that election, there was all sorts of protests going on. And as a foreign correspondent, I was advised uh, by officials there that I should probably leave the country, that I wasn't safe, as were many other foreign journalists. We were under threat and that there wasn't much that they could do to, to um, guarantee our safety. So they said I should leave. This was a, a month after I had you know, picked up my life in California and moved to Iran. Um, so I, I wasn't going to head home to California with, you know, my tail between my legs and, uh, and quit, but I also couldn't stay in Iran. So I went to Dubai, you know, um, which is something that a lot of people in that part of the world do. Uh, Dubai, with a certain amount of social freedom, is a place where you go to, you know, kind of 
release the pressure a little bit. And one night uh, at a gathering, um, a very small gathering, uh, I was hanging out with a friend and, and somebody that she was interviewing. Um, and the person that she was interviewing was, was telling us about what was going on in Iran, although he hadn't been there in a long time. And he said, you know, my two cousins have been in these street protests. And, um, and they'll be here in a few minutes. So just hang around. Uh, and the door opened. And um, as I write in the book, you know, these big branded bags from the Dubai Mall walk in. And behind them <laughs> is my wife. Um, and I, you know, it was a kind of a love at first sight sort of moment. And it, w it was not an easy um, uh, beginning to our relationship. She went back to Iran. Uh, I stayed in Dubai for several months, but we were talking every day. And, and four months later, when I returned to Iran, it was as though we had already been together for a very long time. And so we navigated this very difficult um, social scene in Iran where dating is not um, uh, legal, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Um, and um, and we, we, we slowly but surely built a life together. I, I lured her into journalism, which I hope she's forgiven me for. Um, but she's a great journalist as well. Iggy and became the correspondent in Tehran for Bloomberg News, which is a very responsible job. And, uh, and you know, she, she did it with, uh, with grace and style in a way that very few other uh, foreign-born, non-native English-speaking Iranians had done previously. So we were kind of a media power couple <laughs> in, in that moment. I mean, she working for Bloomberg, me for, for the Washington Post. You know, we represented probably 40% of the English language uh, reporting coming out of Tehran in our little apartment um, in, in the west of the city. Well, the god of Ben Bradley and Sally Quinn uh, looked down on us. Uh, it's good to be a media power couple. I think so. Um, so um, I want to ask you to think with us about Iran now. Yeah. And about the policy choices that the United States faces. And let's start with the deal that was being negotiated while you were being held in prison. In a sense, you were a bargaining chip in that negotiation. And that's the so-called JCPOA, the Iran uh, nuclear deal. Um, asking you as a, as a journalist, analytically, what's your judgment about that deal, its benefits for the U.S. Uh, and, and negatives? And then, if you, if you would, um, your assessment of the decision by uh, the Trump administration to withdraw from the deal. Look, I, I think that there's plenty of uh, issues to be found with any deal that's made. Uh, but ultimately, we made a deal, right? And um, by the measures that were uh, set in place in the framework of that deal um, and the people that were judging it, including our own intelligence community and, and uh, the, the Atomic Energy um, Association uh, Agency, excuse me, um, they agreed that Iran was living up to that deal. So I think it was a little bit um, irresponsible for us to leave at the time that we did, because it creates a situation where people don't uh, necessarily believe in uh, the ink that America writes these days. That's problematic from my point of view. Um, but I also think that it was not designed to curtail Iran from doing all this other nefarious stuff that it, it was doing. It was decided 
by the U.S. government and other world powers that stopping the progress of the nuclear program was the um, most immediate threat that Iran posed to international security. And we stopped that. And it could have been something to build off of. That's my understanding based on talking to uh, State Department officials who worked on the deal, EU officials who worked on the deal, UK officials who worked on the deal. They didn't want to talk about this publicly at the time, but this was something that, that we hoped we could build off of in the future. And the fact that we were able to get Russia and China on board uh, as well with the sanctions leading up to it um, and in the implementation of the deal uh, was a sign of, of great hope. One of the negotiators, not an American one, uh, told me that um, after the fact, uh, they used to refer to themselves as uh, the family. Is the family getting together? And you know, they were talking about the American delegation, the EU delegation, the German delegation, but also the Chinese and Russian delegation. It was a big group effort. Um, and um, I think that ship has sailed now. I don't think that there's any going back. So the question now is uh, what's going to happen as the United States seeks to impose, in the president's words, crippling new sanctions on Iran and to essentially make it impossible for other countries, uh, especially in Europe, that signed the deal uh, to do business with Iran. And my reporting tells me that that effort uh, has been pretty successful and that already, but even more as this year progresses, the wheels are going to tighten yep. uh, on Iranian commerce on its ability to export oil, that Iran's economic problems will increase. The administration seems to have the idea that as it creates a ruined economy in Iran through these crippling sanctions, something good will come from that. Do you believe that? I think that they believe that, that they believe that, that, um, that these crippling sanctions uh, will lead to, you know, widespread dissatisfaction among the population of Iran, um, and you know, encourage them to rise up and overthrow uh, the regime. I think that's sort of a antiquated way of looking at these things. Yes, there's a lot of dissatisfaction in the country, uh, but the, the the sanctions are crippling people's ability. Uh, to do any kind of business, people's ability to live their lives, people's ability to get really common uh, drug therapies for you know illnesses that are treatable. Uh, so a lot of people are dying and have died because of these sanctions in Iran, and more will. So I think that that this notion that you know the Iranian people, what they really need is to be backed into this corner so that they can you know come out of the gates like a hungry tiger, is is um, short-sighted at best. Ultimately, I think that, uh, that they're the ones that are hurt most. And, and, and most importantly, you know, we hear so much rhetoric about how we're supporting the Iranian people's aspirations for a freer and better future. At the same time, we've imposed a blanket ban on their ability to travel to this country. How do you square those two things? I don't think our policy uh, has, has properly described that yet. So, it's a work in progress, and uh, I would encourage um, the current administration to keep working on it, because they could do a heck of a lot better than they are. 
Again, I want to just ask you to, to drill down and focus on the question that's really at the <coughs> core of this strategy, and that's the, the idea that the Iranian people, unhappy with this regime, and I don't see any evidence that tells me otherwise. I think Iranian people don't like living in this no. repressive uh, theocratic regime, but that the idea is that as near as I can tell, Iran is in some pre-revolutionary state. When the president goes on television, he says, they're in the streets, they're marching in the streets. You've never seen demonstrations like this. Um, give us a little uh, ground truth and reality ch check there. W what is the state of public dissent? As things get worse, what would you expect will happen? I think that you know over the past 20 years, there's been uh, periodic protests in Iran. Uh, in the late 1990s, there was a big wave of them. Again, in 2009, what we've seen over the past year or so is probably the most prolonged and sustained um, series of protests. And it's happening uh, around economic issues, which is new, right? That's the concern right now. It's less about people's desire for, um, for you know, basic rights and more about the desire to feed themselves. But at the same time, you have a populace that's become uh, very educated. Uh, and within that population of educated people, women are more educated than men. right? And they play an outsized role in the workforce. And they're paid less money. So they, you know, women are, are demanding a, a separate set of, uh, of, of things than, than poor working class people. So it's, a, it's sort of a perfect storm of, of, of bad news uh, for the Iranian public. And I think that, that protests will continue. They'll continue to grow. But ultimately, it's the regime that has the guns and the tanks and, uh, and the control over infrastructure. And anybody who's been to that country and been to, uh, to other countries who uh, have uh, crumbled from within can tell you that Iran has you know, an infrastructure that that actually works. So breaking that apart and, and taking a control, uh, taking control of it by new forces is not going to be an easy task. That's a very uh, useful uh, caution, and I, and I hope people hearing this take uh, Jason Jason's word seriously. I'm going to go turn to another question from that came in on social media. This is a man named Parvaz on Twitter asks. How do you cope with the possibility of never going back to Iran, a country that you once called home? I cope with it on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I, I also know that there are other people who have much more um, significant ties to that country, deeper roots in that country than I ever will. I live with one of them. I'm married to one of them. Uh, and so. You know, my concerns about not being able to go back um, are um, minor in comparison to, to lots and lots of folks. I, w I did an event last night uh, in New York, and um, a middle-aged couple came to me afterwards and said that um, we left uh, Tehran on February 10th, 1979. Of course, February 11th was the day that the Islamic Republic was founded. That's coming up. In a couple of weeks, it's 40 years since they haven't been back to Iran. So I'm not worried about me. Um, I miss it. I miss our life there. 
I'm sad that um, we'll never be able to go back to the, that same life in the same way that we had it. But I'm also hopeful, and I know uh, within that at some point, I'll go back to Iran. A lot of other people are going to have to come, come and go safely uh, before I'm willing to take that. <laughs> and I got a big brother sitting in the audience today that probably would um, disown me if I went. So I'm not going anywhere. You know, we'd probably, Doug Gell, your editor, would probably <laughs> love to send you Here's back. The, well. Uh, <laughs> We, uh, we're, we're hurting for, for good uh, coverage. So I want to ask one uh, uh, final broad question, and, and I want to uh, frame it around something that you write in your book. Uh, these uh, interrogators, Kazim and uh, Borzu, are, you know, blindfolding you and asking you all these crazy questions, you know, one after another. And you finally, in frustration at one point, say, I'm an agent for the Washington Post. <laughs> That's all I do. That's what I, I and I, I, I asked it that way because I think that's what I most want people to understand about our network of foreign coverage and, and what, we, what we do. People like Jason overseas are taking huge risks to represent our readers. You know, you're there as the eyes and ears of our readers, uh, increasingly our, our viewers. And maybe you could just say a little bit about what that's like. This is part of the world where everybody assumes you're working for somebody. Right. And just say again what you said to, to Kazim and explain you know, what you meant. I, what I meant was that I'm doing a job for... Uh, one of the biggest, most important news organizations in the world, and I'm doing it completely transparently uh, with the full um, knowledge and permission of the state that you work for. It's a, it's, a, it's a delicate dance to write for the paper of record of the U.S. Capitol from uh, the capital of an adversarial nation. Um, there are a lot of assumptions on this side that need to be taken into account. Uh, and there's a lot of rules and regulations on that side. Um, and I, I think we at The Post, uh, when I was working there, we had a, a, a way of, of navigating that situation in Iran. And I know that the foreign team has to do that in every place that we work. Um, and, and I think that there was a sort of a, an acceptance that we couldn't do 100% of what we wanted to do, but it was important to have those eyes and ears on the ground. Um, and to have that taken away from us in such a dramatic fashion, um, you know, th three years after that whole ordeal ended, I know it stings for me. I think it stings for you, and I think it, it probably uh, stings the entire uh, company that, that they did this to us. Well, that's a perfect way to, to end things. L let me just close by saying again, we're so glad to have you and Yegi with you, your mom, uh, sitting in the, in the front row. Um, the Washington Post is a great newspaper in, in so many ways, but rarely was it uh, a better, more admirable than in, in the way that uh, Fred Ryan, our publisher, and Marty Barron and everybody um, stood behind uh, you when you'd been put in prison, and uh, it makes it all the sweeter to have you with us. So, thank you.
That was awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.